0: Soin. My life in the Ah, hay khallou msh good to go yeah copy and let's do this OK. Now, would you want to take a look at the SD card that's supposed to be in this little machine? Huh? Oh, now it's good. So I guess it pops out. Okay, we are ready to continue. To continue the narrative of the Hallel as it is presented in the Haggadah Shal Pesach. So let me open by reiterating something that I talked about yesterday. The thesis is this. Chapters or Psalms 113, 114, through 118 are laden with extraordinary layers of meaning. And, and it's a study in and of itself. And I actually, Baruch Hashem, recorded classes. My ultimate goal is to record classes on the entirety of David and Melech's Tilim, And I made a little dent. So far I got uh, something like 111 through 119. And um, some other pieces here and there. And it's a different kind of class. It's different when you study the Tehillim. When you study the words of David HaMelech. In and of themselves. So that's a certain focus. This is a class on Haggadah Shal-Pesach. And as such. We are going to be studying the Haggadah. Or the Hallel. In the Haggadah. As it specifically pertains to the narrative of the exodus from Egypt. So that's the little preface. Yesterday, in our previous episode, we discussed the words of the Gemara in Mesechet Psachim, page 118, about the halo, the halo which, as mentioned, is called the Egyptian halo, the halo which tells the story of the exodus of Yitzhiah's Mitzrayim. And the Gemara queried, where does it say specifically or where does it allude to the going out of Mitzrayim? The first chapter, Psalm 113, has no direct allusion, although there is enormous amounts of remez, of kind of hinting at things that happened when they left Mitzrayim. Beginning with the opening statement. However, the Gemara says, Yetzies Mitzrayim, of course it's in hollow. Psalm 114, the second chapter, which we are beginning to study today, Betzeis Yisrael Mimitzrayim, when the Jewish people were going out of Egypt. I want to begin today's commentary by sharing with you the words of the Medrash. This is also found in the Medrash Tillim. Uh, Yaakov Shimoni has pieces of this. It's found in a number of different places. I will read to you from the Midrash itself. Our sages commented, B'Tseis Yisroel Mimitzaim, At the time that the Jewish people were leaving Egypt. And the rest of the verses, Beit Yaakov, the house of Jacob, Me'amloi. So Israel leaves Egypt. The house of Jacob leaves the place of foreign tongue. Why do we emphasize Mitzrayim? Like, this is not about Egypt, but it is a little bit about Egypt because the story is not only the story of the Jewish people leaving the land of Mitzrayim. The story is how they left and how the Egyptians reacted. This is what the Medrash says. King David in the 105th Psalm makes a statement about the attitude of the slave taskmasters. He says, Somach Mitzrayim B'Tseiton. The Egyptians were really happy to see us go. Now, that sounds a little odd because you all know the rest of the story. A few days after we left, the Pharaoh said, mazot asinu, what have we done to ourselves? ki es Yisrael me'avdeinu. we have sent Israel away from being our slaves, from serving us. So that was an afterthought. But initially, on the day we left Mitzrayim, David Melech, King David says, Psalm 105, verse 38, samach Mitzrayim. Egypt rejoiced. O ma'rabi Moshul, here is a metaphor, a parable, which will help you understand why Egypt was rejoicing. Were they not losing their entire workforce? Here they had free labor for decades on end, and now they would lose this. It would necessarily have a huge impact in the economy. I mean, the local Egyptian citizen would have to start actually working again, instead of abusing the Israelites. A parable. The says, here's the parable. Balbosar. Forgive me. A portly person. We used to call it fat in English. But that's offensive. So, somebody who is a well endowed. A little large, large person. Who is riding a donkey. Now, the commentaries say that for a number of reasons, the Egyptians are metaphorized as donkeys. It's not meant to to offend uh, the Egyptians or the donkeys. I mean, the Democratic Party today, for whatever reason, has assumed the image of a donkey and the Republican Party in the United States assumes the image of an elephant. I wouldn't want to be an elephant or a donkey. I'm not sure how those animals got associated. You can probably Google it and find out. It's actually irrelevant. The point I'm trying to make is it's not meant as offensive. There's just a number of similarities or corollary between behavior of the donkey and the behavior of mitzrayim so the egyptians were metaphorized as donkeys and we the jewish people the fat man riding the donkey what happens is hamrah maskei the the donkey is awaiting when is this fat fellow going to get off my back? The Ihu, Maske, and the guy who's a little large, who's like kind of balancing himself on the donkey, he's not exactly comfortable. Maske, he is awaiting, When can I get off this donkey already? So nobody's happy. Fat man riding the donkey, and both are unhappy. But that's the circumstance they're in. They both want to get off this ride. Everybody wants it to end. Kevon. Why? So the Mepharshim say because the donkey was going too slow. I, I uh, kind of ad-libbed uh, the lack of balance. The donkey's going so slow. I've I got to get myself a fast animal. This is, this is laboriously, painfully slow. i got to get off it. Kevon. The Nachis. Once he finally dismounted, Chodei Gavra, the man was so happy, Vchodei Chamra, and the donkey was so happy. Why? Because each one got out of a circumstance, a situation he didn't want to be in. So now the medrash says to further develop this metaphor, Les Anan Yodoy Man Chodei Tfei. Here's what we don't know. We know everybody's happy. We don't know who's happier. Is it the large fellow or the poor little donkey? In In the metaphor, so it is, as the Israelites are in Egypt. The plagues are pounding the Egyptians. The Egyptians couldn't wait for this to end. When are the Israelites just going to go? And this is in reflected in the verse, mitzrayim al haomlem, On that night of the Korban Pesach, after the tenth and final pummeling, the death of the firstborns, the Egyptians were begging pressuring the Jewish people, just go already. The Yisrael Macavim, the Jewish people, are eagerly anticipating, awaiting. When do we leave? A Mosai, you go When does God redeem us? But God doesn't redeem them at night. In fact he says, you're not allowed to go out the whole night. So finally, at high noon, the next day, Hashem says, now, exactly the nanosecond of the birth of Yitzchak, the conclusion of the words that Hashem said 400 years, exactly 400 years later, to the minute, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, redeems the Jewish people. Says the Medrash, shenigalu." Once they were redeemed, hischilu elu vielus Smechim. The Jewish people, the Israelites, were so happy. We're free. The Egyptians were so happy. We're free of the Jews. We're free of our Israelites. Everybody was happy. The question is, who did it better? Who was happier? From the fact that King David says, "Samach Mitzrayim." The Egyptians rejoiced at the exit, at the exodus of the Jewish people. We know that the Egyptians were actually happier than the Israelites, that this ordeal had come to an end. And that's how we understand the B'Tseis Y'Saom This is B'Tseis Y'Saom the medrash says, at this time, it's all good. It's all good. The Israelites are happy, the Egyptians are happy, everybody's happy the ordeal is over. Now, the Pharaoh is going to change his mind. And that makes his act all the more treacherous. But at this moment, when we're singing Hashem's praises, it's all joy all around. So it says, the Israelites, Bitsait Yisrael, when Israel leaves Mitzrayim. And then it says, Beit Yaakov, the house of Jacob, Me'am goes out from the nation of foreign tongue. Why is, why is it Egypt called Am loez, a foreign tongue nation? I'm an English speaker. I live in Canada. In our country, there are two official languages, French and English. Don't hold it against me, but I live in Ontario, which is more of a British province. In fact, on the Ontarian flag, we have a piece of the British flag. Quebec, more French. They have some France in the flag of Quebec. So for me, French is a foreign language. Yes, I I see French all over. When I go shopping, I actually learn a little French by reading the label in French and English. I just don't know how to pronounce it properly. But for me, it's a foreign language. Why? It's not the language I speak. Hebrew is not a foreign language for me. Yiddish is not a foreign language for me. Aramaic is not a foreign language for me. English is not a foreign language for me. French is for me. That doesn't make English or French any better or worse. For me, it's a foreign language. And for lots of people in Quebec, English is a foreign language. They speak French only. And some people are bilingual here in this country and speak both. Which is foreign? For Canada, English or French, the answer is neither. That's the language of this country. And for people in this country, Italian is a foreign language. Even if you speak English and French, you don't speak Italian. You certainly don't speak Russian, for example. There's kind of a crossover. I speak a little Spanish. There's a crossover between Spanish, or Castilian, or Portuguese and Italian, old Romance languages. When you start talking about the Slavic languages, Polish or Russian, totally different language. So, who is the foreigner? It depends where you are. Who was foreign? Who didn't belong? The Israelites didn't belong in Egypt. So, who was the foreigner? I mean, Egypt spoke Egyptian. That's, that's the local language. The Hebrews, the Israelites were the foreigners. We spoke the foreign tongue. So what does it mean we left the land of a foreign tongue? It actually doesn't seem to make sense. The Medrash shohar Tov, also known as the Medrash Tehillim. And this Medrash is found in a number of other places too number of places. Yaakov yeah, Shimoni quotes similar medrash. Medrash Abba has similar. But I'm, I'm sharing with you from the medrash tool. Omer um, Rebbe Lazar HaKaper. Rebbe Lazar said that the Torah, the scripture, wants to broadcast to you reasons for redemption. What? By virtue of what? By dint of what? Did Israel merit redemption? Rabbi Eleazar taught Arba Dvarim, Four things. For four reasons. Four merits stood in our stead to catalyze redemption. Number one. Sh'loy shinu They didn't change their names. They came to a different country. People use different names. People like to adopt local names. Jewish people didn't do that. Israelites kept their names. Number two. They didn't adopt the language of the country in which they were living. For them, it was always foreign. A different language. Legilu es misturin didn't reveal their secret. By the way, according to commentaries on the Medrash Shochotov, the word "misturim" is related to the Latin word mysterium. Yeah, that's probably where the word mystery comes from. So the Jewish people had a secret. Shh, they never told their secret. Nobody opened their mouth and blabbed world or two they used to say loose lips sink ships nobody spoke because if even one person if even one individual would have spoken everything could have gone wrong and don't fool yourself we had treacherous Jews Data they also left Mitzrayim nobody spoke and finally, the fourth reason that our sages give us, La hoya we weren't a moral people, but there was no licentiousness. The one thing that the Jewish people did maintain was a sense of propriety, a sense of modesty, a sense of monogamy, and a sense of decency when it came to these matters. Those were the four things. Now, you must understand that if these were the merits we had, it means there were no other merits. What we have described here, more or less, is almost cultural. Names are a cultural thing. Language is certainly cultural to be patriotic, or hold on to your nation's secrets. Cultural. And there are cultures that are licentious, like the culture we live in today. And there are cultures that are not, like some of the cultures prevalent right now in the 21st century. There are certain cultures in which there's deceit, and theft, and murder. but they maintain monogamy. They're not licentious amongst themselves. They don't behave in a licentious fashion. In fact, they have zero tolerance for licentiousness. It doesn't make it uh, a fantastic culture, but this is an element, a positive element, not the zero tolerance and murderous attitude, but the notion of not being licentious is a positive thing from a Torah perspective. So the Jewish people were cultural. Cultural about in their behavior. Culturally distinct. Ah, this is the point. By virtue of what did Am Yisrael merit? Hashem's redemption. By virtue of remaining distinct, separate and apart. We didn't assimilate. Now, ever since we left Mitzrayim, Cultural Judaism will not ensure a lack of assimilation. Bagels and Lachs Judaism doesn't last very long. A generation, maybe two. Yiddishkeit is what maintains us. It's only because we continue to remain connected to Hashem by virtue of following Hashem's holy instructions, by studying the sacred scripture, His holy Torah, that's why we are able to maintain our survival and our continued reality, our continued existence. However, however, at the time when we were in Mitzayim, it's before Matan Torah. We didn't really have commandments per se. God didn't instruct us to do things. So we were distinct, we were apart, we were different. We looked at those around us as foreign. That's an attitude. Everybody wants to become part of what's popular. Everybody wants to, if you will, embrace the currency of the day. But Am Yisrael didn't. Beit Yaakov saw itself as its edifice that was distinct, separate and apart unto itself. We live, they said, in a foreign land, a land of foreign tongue. So this is a commentary on how the Jewish people actually succeeded in maintaining their distinct and unique identification. Our sages tell us that there were many people at the time who mocked the notion of the Ethnic purity of the Jewish people. Till we left Mitzrayim, there were no converts. It was all children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In a certain sense, we became converts. But we were, at that time, an ethnicity. We were ethnically Jewish. We didn't have a Yiddishkeit, per se. We didn't have Neshamot as we know them today. We weren't chosen as Hashem's special people. Asher boch Arbonu, that's That's Yitzhia's Mitzrayim. That's Matan Torah. So we don't have that. So we were an ethnic people. And the question, the question then becomes: if we were only an ethnic people, who says our ethnicity was really purebred? begufam. If the Egyptians owned our bodies, so to speak, tortured, broke, murdered us. You think there was no rape? You think there was no abuse? You think there was no assimilation by default? For sure there was. I say just tell us not so. Not so. In fact, there was one single Jewish child sired by an Egyptian. One. And the story is spoken of in the Torah, and the elimination of the rapist is the first major act of bravery attributed to Moses, to Moshe Rabbeinu. So the question is asked this merit of Lehoyo Prutzimba this notion that they were chaste and they didn't engage. In licentious behavior, no, not but one but a single one amongst them, what does that have to do with the idea of speaking Hebrew or keeping the Hebrew names? So let me share with you a fascinating teaching that's quoted in the name of the Eretz Hachaim, the Haggadah called Eretz Hachaim. Uh, pardon me, Haggadah's Sashir. The got this Birchus Hashir, ah, before I go to this, okay, I do want to speak to Beth Eretz Chaim. So the Eretz Chaim, who is quoted, who is cited in the Haggadah called Migdal Eder, says this. He says this something very interesting. Before I go to the story of that one woman who was compromised. We know that the names Yisrael and Yaakov, both names are the names of the third patriarch, And that the name Yisroel, later on, when it comes to Matan Torah, is said to refer to the male population. And that Beit Yaakov is said to refer to the female population. God tells Moses, go and speak to the people. Tell them to prepare for the giving of the Torah. It says... The word tagid. Go and tell or talk to Yisrael. And then it says this is how you should speak. And Rashi tells us as a rule and this is a rule which is found really throughout the Torah that the word or tagid daber is tough talk. And the word Amira or Tomar refers to things softly spoken. That is to say that God told Moses go and speak to the men and give them some tough talk because you won't get through to them otherwise. Dvarim koshen kigidim things that are tough as tendons or tough as, as a particular kind of root. Bitter. Tough. That's the only way you're going to be able to get the men to understand what's going on here. When it comes to the woman, however, speak softly. They don't need a tough cell. Soft cell is going to work. Softly spoken. They're more refined. They're more willing. They will respond better to a different kind of attitude and approach. And interestingly... The different methods of communication are separated by Yisrael and by Yaakov. The Rebbe once explained that Yisrael represents a virtue that Jacob developed, whereas Jacob is the name he was given at birth. And the Rebbe said, broadly speaking, the responsibility Of education of higher education will fall to the father but the foundation for a Jews life will come in his home from his mother and if you didn't have a good Yiddish mama a good Jewish mother like I did you got a problem because you didn't get the right foundation and a structure built on a faulty foundation is not. It's not a, something that bodes well for the future. So it is Jewish women who lay the foundation. For every single yid's development. The Eretz Achayim says, that David Hamelach King David chooses his words so carefully here. Betzeit Yisrael mimitzrayim when Israel the nation went out of Mitzrayim. By virtue of what? the By virtue of the righteous woman. Of Beit Yaakov. In other words, who ensured that when we were in Egypt that we were a distinct people? Who was it at the vanguard of our nation to create the protective walls? To ensure that we were disparate from the locals to the point that we said we're living in a foreign country. It's all foreign to us. It was a Jewish woman. And here, we have to address this question of that, that one woman. Now here it says, seems that the women were the ones who maintained the chastity. The women were the ones who maintained the purity and the holiness of the Jewish people. And what does that have to do with language? And the story of Shlomit Bad Divri, the only woman who was sadly abused, taken advantage of, and through whom a child was sired who was not, so to speak, ethnically Jewish, who at the time even required what we would call conversion, although today, if your mother's Jewish, you do not require conversion. That's only post Matan Torah. And here is the beautiful explanation which I found in the commentary on Haggadah called Birchatashir. So what was the story of Shlomit Bad Divri? The Egyptian taskmaster had taken notice of her. She was a little forward, a little outgoing. She engaged in conversation and she caught his eye. She doesn't make her guilty. But she wasn't modest the Egyptian taskmaster would come and wake the husband in the middle of the night force him to leave the home torment him told him if he moved he'd be killed and then he'd slip back into the house and the drowsy woman wouldn't even know the difference and he cohabited with her now He may have done this once or twice or three times. We don't know. We know at least once. And when the man came back into bed, he sensed what had happened. And when the Egyptian sensed that the Jew knew his secret and what he had done, he began to endlessly torment him. Moses sees this. He investigates and he finds out what happened. Moses sees that there is no recourse. Anybody can do anything about this? Endless abuse? And when the answer is no, Moses takes some very, very tough affirmative action. Carrying out vigilante justice for which he almost pays with his own life. Unfortunately, because he was slandered by Dattan and Avira. So the Birch Hashir says this. How was it possible for this man to assume the role of Shlomit's husband if he didn't speak Hebrew? And our sages tell us that Egypt at the time was an extremely multicultural country. Many languages were spoken. They were very educated. But there was one language that they didn't know. The pharaoh, who is considered to be not only the ruler, but also the most brilliant. Like many of the Greek kings, who were also profound philosophers, like Alexander the Great, a disciple of Aristotle. The Pharaoh spoke 69 languages that were prevalent at his time. And Joseph went toe-to-toe with the Pharaoh But there was one language the Pharaoh didn't speak, and that was Hebrew. For some reason, the Egyptians couldn't get Hebrew. That was the unspoken language. The most educated of them didn't speak it. The Pharaoh swears Joseph to secrecy because he doesn't want people to know that he can't speak Hebrew. And when Joseph is sworn by his father to take his coffin to Israel for burial... The Pharaoh says, So what if you made an oath? Break your oath. To which Joseph responded, Can I break an oath? I seem to remember making an oath about a language you don't speak. The Pharaoh said, Yeah, right, right, of course we don't break oaths. Oaths have to be kept. So Egypt didn't speak Hebrew. Well, if Egypt didn't speak Hebrew, how could he feign being her husband? They had to say something. Had to have been some kind of pillow talk going on there. Shlomit was the one, the one Israelite woman who spoke Egyptian. And Shlomit and her husband spoke Egyptian amongst themselves. These two Danites were different than the rest. And so the notion of a different name and a different language a unique or special kind of secret method of communication had been left at the door by these Danites, by Shlomit and her husband. And that tragically led to her being abused and to the siring of a child who didn't come from a Jewish father. Now he has a very, very sad and tragic end, but that's for a different day. The point, of course, is this. It was not just for disparate merits; they're all linked together. It was precisely because they kept their Jewish names, which incidentally, when the Medrash talks about the Jewish names, it says Liruveni, Ruveni, Haruveni, Lishimon, Hashimoni, and our sages tell us in Rashi quotes that Haruveni and Hashimoni is God's name Hay and Yud applied to the names of the tribes, testifying to their ethnic purity. That they were indeed the progeny of Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. So you see, it's not different facts. These merits all come together. The merits come together to give us a picture. So yesterday in the radio, I was asked Are the Jewish people an ethnicity? Are we a race? And my answer, of course, was no, because we have Jews from every persuasion. Black Jews, green Jews, blue Jews, yellow Jews, all kinds of Jews. So what are the Jewish people? The interviewer says to me. Co-religionists? People who do the same thing? I said, no, there are lots of Jews who don't do anything that we believe in and that we're supposed to do. So what or how do you define the Jewish people? And my answer was a family. We're a family. We share a common soul, kindred souls. Just like siblings share common genetics, we share a common spiritual genetic, a common soul. And whether your sibling behaves properly or disrespects your parents, whether your sibling is interested in being related to the family or not, they're still your sibling. You still share that same genetic code. And whether a Jew is agnostic or angry or claims to be atheist, he or she is still part of the family. You still have the same spiritual DNA. You can't get rid of it. It's like changing your eye color. A yid is a yid is a yid. can't change it. You can sadly adopt behavior that's foreign to who you intrinsically are, but you always remain a yid. As I say, just put it, even though he or she has grievously sinned, they still remain a Islam. But before Matan Torah, we didn't have the definition of a Jew as we have a Jew today. This is all created by God at the time of the Exodus and reaching its perfection or maturation at the time of the giving of the Torah. So when we leave Egypt, the merits we have are our distinctness and our apartness. It's interesting, the Bali HaTaisvah, our quote of uh, the Ravon. He says, Kol loshen She'eni loshen HaKodesh Kari Hachi Loez is the name we use in Torah literature for non-Hebrew. It's called Laz. It's foreign. Foreign to us. For us, the Hebrew language is the holy tongue. As Nachmanides explains at length in his commentary on the Ten Commandments, Nachmanides explains that this is the language through which God brought the world into existence. It is that each one of the Hebrew alphabets pulsates with a particular energy. And for us, that is language. That's Lashon HaKodesh. That's the sacred or distinct tongue. And everything else is foreign to it. Including Jewish languages. Like Yiddish or Ladino. Which are a mixture, a hodgepodge of different languages. Uniquely Jewish. But at the same time, not Lashon HaKodesh. Not God's sacred tongue. So now we have, I think, a fair understanding of how this second chapter of Halal opens. It opens with the Jewish people leaving Egypt. It opens with an emphasis of, by virtue of what we were able to leave Egypt, and it gives us a sense of appreciation for the way we maintained our identity, our distinctness, our separateness, our apartness, and gives credit to the Jewish woman specifically. And there are multiple teachings of our sages which favor the Jewish woman, giving them the credit for having maintained our existence so that we could merit redemption. So let's move along now. We've now established, we understand, we understand the idea of the very next statement is, Hayatah Yehuda, Lakatho." Yehuda came into His holiness. Yehuda, We got Israel. We got Jacob. Where'd Yehuda come from? Isn't Yehuda just one of the tribes? Now it's really interesting because we are called the Jewish people. And that term rises to prominence during the story of Purim. Mordechai, who is from the tribe of Binyamin, is not called Mordechai ha although, lineage-wise, that's how he identifies. He's called Mordechai haYehudi. As our rabbis explain, Yehudi means one who refuses to acknowledge idolatry, who recognizes the supremacy of HaKadosh Baruch the Creator alone. But why now, going out of Mitzrayim, do we emphasize our Jewishness? So the Medrash tells us, Hayatah Yehuda Lekacho is what happened next. Leaving Mitzrayim, Yisrael, and Yaakov. Now, at the end of that first week, we come to the foot, the shore of the Reed Sea. At this point, Judah emerges as most prominent. He emerges as holy and sanctified. Says the Medrash, When the people of Israel reach the sea, Who's going first? Who goes first? And they couldn't figure this out. There's another medrash that says. They didn't want to go. Nobody wanted to go first. But either which way we look at it. Whether everybody was fighting about who should go first. And standing on ceremony. Or whether they're just simply terrified. Which is the simple pshat. There was one man who took affirmative action. Bringing merit to the entire nation. And his name was Nachshon. He was the son of Aminodov. And you guessed it. He was from the tribe of. Of Yehuda. He jumped into the ferocious, the raging sea. He sanctified God's name in full view of all assembled. The entire nation saw how a prominent member of the tribe of Yehuda simply went forward. Because that's what Moshe said. Time to move forward. Move forward. <laughs> There's a raging sea, Moses. I know. I can see, as you can, move forward. One man did it. And his tribes' people followed. And they sanctified God's name. And when this happened, this gave Yehuda the leadership position for posterity. Now, Yehuda. The son of Yaakov was the leader, the acknowledged leader amongst his brothers. And that's where the issues of the brothers and Yosef came from. In fact, the Abar Benel, in his commentary, Zevach Pesach says that you must know that this distinction between Yehuda and Yisrael is as old as the tribes themselves. And it's something which provides the groundwork or presages the division of the Jewish people later on in the land of Israel as detailed in the book of Kings. Yehudah's l'kodshay, set aside, sanctified by God to be the leader of the Jewish people. But the rest of Am Yisrael doesn't necessarily go along. It's interesting that Moshe Rabbeinu was a Levi, And the spiritual and political leadership of the Jewish people are vested in the hands of Moshe and his Hasidim who are Levites. But that's just that generation. In the end, in the end, the only permanent house of royalty and true leadership, the real ideal of the lawgiver, the head of the Sanhedrin, that's in the hands of Yehuda. And of course, it is David Hamelech from the tribe of Yehuda who establishes the eternal monarchy of the Jewish people. And it is Mashiach, a direct descendant of David and Shlomo from the tribe of Yehuda, who will soon emerge to lead us home in Mertz Hashem and bring about a global change, the coming of Mashiach. So you see, this division is not artificial. And this division was historic, almost organic, to how the Jewish people, the nation of Israel developed. The job of true leadership is not to tell everybody else what to do, but to lead by example. And that was Yehuda. Yehuda led by example. This was a critical moment for the Jewish people. As is discussed in the Talmud and the Medrash. everything lie here in balance. We almost lost it before we got off, so to speak, into the desert. We almost ended it right there. It was the leadership of Nachshon and Aminodov. It was the leadership that came from the tribe of Yehuda that galvanized, uplifted, and inspired the nation of Israel. And that, my dear friends, is the continuation, Yehuda Ha Yisrael, Mamshaloys of Israel, then becomes the, the dominion, the dominion of Hashem. But as Abarbanel puts it, it is the dominion, rulership, or leadership of Yehuda that ultimately brings the Jewish people, brings Am Yisrael, the nation of Israel, forward. Now, to appreciate precisely what Yehuda does accomplish and why it is important for us to emphasize Yehuda, I would like to share with you the words of a great descendant of the tribe of Yehuda, from the house of David HaMelech the Maharal of Prague. In his commentary in the Haggadah Gvudas Hashem the Maharal says, "We notice in this particular psalm lots of redundancy. Everything's doubled. Beit Yisrael, Israel goes out of Mitzrayim. Yaakov goes out of Amlois. Hayta Yehuda lekadcho, Yisrael mamshalosav, Jewish and Israelite." We'll see later, Hayom Ra Hayones, and we'll talk about why did the sea flee. And then, the Yarden, the river, backs up. We're going to talk about mountains, and we'll talk about hills. We'll talk about a flint, and we'll talk about a pond. A, a, a flint turned to water, and a pond of water. A tzoyr, a, a rock, and a chalamash a flintstone. An agamayim, a pond of water? A mineimoyim, A spring or well of water. Everything here is double. What's going on? So the Maharal says, My dear friends, therein lies the true narration of the Exodus. You must understand that it is almighty God, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who creates nature. And then it is God who creates nature the shattering of nature, or miracles. Perhaps this is similar to the words of our sages, Mishabachar be'elamai, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu chooses his world, so to speak, brings the universe into existence, he creates time. Kovalei he creates time. But Mishabachar be'yankiv when HaKadosh Baruch Hu chooses Am Yisrael as his nation, then he establishes the notion of the month of Nisan, which has two nuns in it, as the Gemara says in Misechet Brachot, on page 56, representing the idea of miracles. you see Nisan in a dream. Miracles are coming your way. And the idea of the month of Nisan, which is the first month for the Jewish people, even though the year begins on Rosh Hashanah, because that represents the order of nature. But we, the Jewish people, Am Yisrael, are birthed in miracles. The first Jew is born under miraculous circumstances. The nation of Israel is born out of miraculous circumstances. God creates nature, and he creates that which shatters nature. Version A, version B. That's the redundancy, says Maharal. That's why we first hear about Yisrael, and we hear about Beit Yaakov. We first hear about Yehuda and then we hear about Yisrael. We hear about a yom and we hear about a yardin. We hear about a mountain, we hear about a hill, we hear about a pond, we hear about a stream or a well. The point is that everything is redundant and this emphasizes the notion that we, from the very beginning of our existence, transcend nature it's all about transcendence why do we start off with this notion of Yisroel and Yaakov Mitzrayim and the foreign nation Amlois who refers to Mitzrayim Marel says something fascinating he says that the nation of Israel in its virtuous sense is called Yisroel Sarisa, Melekim, Noshim Vatuchal is the origin of this name to contend with man and God, as it were. Successfully, that's the name Israel. Shem HaMailah. It's called the virtuous name. However, when we speak about Yaakov, it's the name we were born with. He says, Am Yisrael exists as a nation, and then Am Yisrael exists in its holiness. Its holiness means its spirit, its godly spirit. He says the same is true of every nation. Every nation has its physical or literal trapping, whether it's a nation that's framed by its ethnicity or its culture or sometimes a faith system. And then there is the spirit, what you would call the neshama of the nation. When it comes to the nations of the world, they have their culture, their national definition, and then they have a spiritual alter ego, a sar shalmaila, an angel who represents the nation. We, the Jewish people, have our nation, physically, literally, actual definition, and then there is the spirit. But the spirit of the Jewish people is not a tsar, not an angel. It's not a shaman or a spirit. It is chelik elikami It represents nothing short of God himself. And so the Maharal says, when the Jewish people left Mitzrayim, both are true. We leave Egypt literally, but figuratively speaking, we are born as a nation, a holy nation. The spirit of Am Yisrael is born. And that's who we really are. Which is why ethnicity or the technicality of us as a nation plays second fiddle at best. The main thing is the spirit of Hashem within us. The koyach el he says, and he says, HaKadosh Baruch who took us out of Mitzrayim, physically, literally, a nation was identified, separated, and taken out of the bowels of another nation. But he says, more importantly, we were released from their hold over us. The Koyach Khlipa, the spiritual force of Mitzrayim, which had shackled us, which had disabled us from reaching our potential, was broken, and we were lifted out. And when the Jewish people were lifted out, that's precisely what happens at that time. We became a nation by virtue of the fact that we were led by Yehuda. Yehuda is Hayatah, hayatah Lakacho. It's a feminine term. The Maharal says that this Lashen Ekeva denotes the idea that we, the Jewish people, are the proverbial spouse of God. Marriage cloaks a woman with sacred holiness. It makes her exclusive only to her husband. We am Yisrael, by virtue of our Yehuda, of our Rebbe. By virtue of our Man Malki of the spirit of David HaMelech in us. Of the leadership, true Torah leadership, represented by Yehuda. By virtue of this, we are proverbially married unto God. So it's through Yehuda L'Kadshay, through the leadership, the Torah leadership, that ultimately we become Yisroel Ma'am that Israel's dominion is derived. You know, today is the Rebbe's birthday. And here you see so clearly how who we are as a nation has everything to do with our Torah leadership, with that Rebbe. It brings forth Ma'am the dominion, the special force that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us. That memshalte Shal HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's God's dominion that is called upon us. And since there is nothing natural about us, there is nothing predictable or even explanatory about the survival, the continued survival of the Jewish people, For whilst we will oftentimes do various things in order to be able to survive, those are but conventions. Those are but mechanisms through which, but that's not the actual source of our survival. The source is our connection to Hashem. Because we are, by dint of our being, a miraculous people. And that, the Maharal says, so why everything is repeated. Why you see this repetition, what looks like redundancy, to emphasize the true source of our strength and our survival. So now let's move forward into the next verse, the business of the sea that flees. Why does the sea flee? Why, does, why do we use that verbiage, verb, the verbiage, the expression of the sea saw, and the sea fled. So let me share with you a Medrash Yalkot This is Yalkot Shimoni number 234. It's found in Parshas Beshalach, as well as the Medrash Rabbah. And the Medrash Shochotov, the Medrash Tilim. So, the first thing that the, that the Al Qutrimani tells us in the scripture, it says, Vayet Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu raised his hand over the sea. That's what it says in the scripture. Medrash says it's true. Moses did raise his hand over the sea because God told him to. Moshe said, Time for you split. And the sea said, Nothing doing. So here's the metaphor, here's the parable. how would we understand the sea first refusing and then acquiescing, in fact fleeing before Moshe? The Bender says, imagine if you could, a king of flesh and blood. He has two gardens. There's the garden the inner garden, and there's the outer garden. He sells that inner garden. The buyer shows up and asks for passage. He's got to get through to his newly acquired property. The guard says, I'm not letting you in. This is the royal gardens. He says, I own that inside, that garden inside. The guard says, I'm not letting you in. He said, I speak in the king's name. I'm a purchaser. He showed him proof. He had the king's signet ring. Or maybe it means a signature. He had proof. Until the king himself showed up. When the king showed up, the guard took off the guard began to run away once the king arrived. Of course, he said to him, what are you running for? But we'll come back to that a little bit later on. So too, says the Yalquot Shemoni, Moshe Rabbeinu raises his hand and he says, time to split. God said so. He says, I'm not splitting. Absolutely not. Moshe shows him the matter. He shows him the staff, it has Hashem's name engraved on it. Like the proverbial signature of God. And then God's presence all of a sudden is seen through the person of Mesha. And when he sees the king himself, his Then the sea decided to flee. In the Medrash Rabbah, it says, Moshe Rabbeinu set out to, to split the sea, to divide, the, to rip the waters open. Like, keep a said, I'm not getting ripped open. Nothing doing. What happened? Moshe Rabbeinu returns, so to speak, to God, and he says, God, the sea refuses. Euphemism. On steroids. This is all obviously anthropomorphical. He placed his right hand on the right hand of Moshe. And when the sea saw, it's not Moses. It's God. Mi'yad u'barach. And that's the notion of the sea seeing and fleeing. This is one way of understanding Hayam Ra, the sea, sees u'barach and it ran away, it fled. There is, my dear friends, however, another narrative. And this narrative is found in a number of different medrashim and different forms. I will share it with you as it shows up in the typical medrash and then I'll share it with you with a slightly changed verbiage. Ro Yisrael, it sees the Jewish people who seek to sanctify Hashem's name, as we talked about earlier, arguing amongst each other. And then Yehuda, who sanctifies Hashem's name, when it sees that, Ro Hayom you see? When the sea saw us fighting about sanctifying Hashem's name, when the sea saw us sanctifying Hashem's name, that was good enough. But then the medr says, another detail, another narrative, another approach. You'll remember that Moses, before leaving the land of Egypt, had to retrieve the coffin of Joseph. So Moses is carrying the bones of Joseph with him. And because he has the bones of Joseph, He's now going down to the Reed Sea with those bones, with that coffin. Amen HaKadosh Baruch Hu. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Yonus Mepnei nos, Flee before he who fled. What does that mean? Shanemar, it says about Yosef when Yosef was tested. Tested. By the mistress of the home, the wife of Potiphar, Yosef came within a centimeter of sin. And then, And then he fled. Leaving his tunic in her hands, his jacket in her hands, he fled. He ran from sin. When the sea saw the man who fled from sin, the sea fled from before Yosef. It wasn't the Jewish people per se, it was the remains of Yosef imprinted with his act of Mesirus Nefesh. The Rebbe once talked about this this medrash and he said, there is another medrash, another version that uses the precise verbiage of the scripture itself. And that is, the medrash says, by dint, or virtue, of the bones of Joseph, the sea split. And that's the meaning of our verse. The sea saw, and it fled. He left his clothing in her hand and fled. So our sages chose... Did I lose a mic. Our sages chose this unusual language, the bones of Joseph. There's a famous Gemara in Masechet Sotah. The Gemara analyzes the fact that the Torah uses the term bones. It doesn't see it as respectful. And, and the Gemara says that um, Yosef is called bones because he didn't stand up for his father's honor. This is a The Shachal Atayra says that this, the, the question became since Yosef was embalmed, the flesh would have survived. Do you have mummies coming out of the ground today? that still have flesh on them, mummified flesh. Why would we call it bones? He says, aha, the Torah is trying to say something. And it's actually a little bit uncomplimentary to Yosef. Point is, atzmot Yosef, bones of Joseph, are not a complimentary term. Why would we use this language when we speak here about the honor and virtue of Yosef? And the Rebbe said an amazing thing. He said, we don't talk about Aaron Yosef. We talk about the idea of Atzmot Yosef. Because the word etzem, which means bone, also means the essence and the force or power of. As we know, bones are the strongest part of one's physical existence. What is the strongest, most essential part of Yosef? Yosef meaning his name. The answer is that Yosef's idea, the essence of Yosef is expressed in his name where Baruch Mother Rachel calls him, Vatikra Ashma Yosef, Lamer to say, Yosef Hashem Li Ben Acher. May God grant me another child. Rachel knew there would only be 12 tribes and she said, if one of the sister wives has a boy, I'm done. I get just one. And her prayers are answered. She gives birth to Binyamin, to Benjamin. The Hasidic interpretation is Yosef Hashem. You add to Hashem, so to speak, bring to Hashem, Bain Acher. Turn one who is indifferent, an Acher, an other, into a Bain. We are intrinsically wired to be Hashem's special children. But there are some Jewish people who turn their backs on God. They say, I'm an acher. I'm not part of this. (laughs) You know, I have to say that. The roshua says, what is this with you people? So our job is to take this fellow who says he's an acher, he's an other, and turn him into a child. The Rebbe said that this is the avodah of Yosef. To add to Kedusha. Even literally, add another child. To bring forth additional, a profusion, a fresh infusion of kedusha of holiness. And that, the Rebbe says, is the cash and carry message for us. Sometimes there's a raging sea before you. By virtue of what can you make your way through the difficult waters of life? Atzmas Yosef. The essence of Yosef. And when we behave in this fashion, when we reach out to another, and the Rebbe certainly made this a mainstay of who we should be, then we are able to overcome the challenges. Now we are able to move forward through the desert to Eretz Tei to greet Mashiach. And all of that is encoded into this notion of Betzei Yisraelm and Mitzrayim because, of course, as we have spoken so many times during the course of these classes, the idea of Yetzias Mitzrayim is not merely historical, but rather dynamic. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to experience Yetzias Mitzrayim in an ongoing fashion and ultimately to bring Yetzias Mitzrayim to its completion of fruition. To the coming of Mashiach. Interestingly. The Maharal. When he talks about this idea. Sorry. No. Okay. So this finishes the idea of. Hayom Rov The verse goes on. Hayarden tisev The Jordan backed up. The Jordan. Who's talking about the Jordan? Our sages tell us. That the notion of the Jordan. Is that on the words, va'yubaku Hamoyim, the water split, there's this idea of, Komayim Sheba All the waters, all waters of the world. It wasn't only the waters in the Reed Sea. In fact, the Sif Sikoyin, among the Torah tells us, that just as the Reed Sea, divided into 12 individual paths, 12 ribbons, so too all the waters of the world divided into 12 ribbons. So much so that the people came to Bilaam and said, why did my bathtub just split? Why did did the stream of water all of a sudden behave in this strange fashion? They were terrified. There's some kind of magnetic pull. There's something going on in the world. Does it mean or spell doom and destruction for us? And Bilaam says, no, 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 no. This is Hashem doing miracles for the Jewish people. Something similar happens at the time of Matan Torah. The Ma'am Lois, and his commentary on Parshas Beshalach says that this was all so that the miracle could be broadcast in real time, so that everybody should know what was happening, and so that when people will come in the future and tell you Bubba Isis about high tide and low tide, and Moses was very smart and knew how to calibrate and time things, we say that's not the story we were told. In our story, it's not just the Reed Sea; it's all seas bodies of water. Maharal says on this very notion he says that this is the meaning of what our sages tell us and this is found in the Medrash Tilim that what is it that it saw the Medrash says that it saw means that if the Yardin, it says was Roish HaOmaniyas, the chief cook and bottle washer. If she fled, (laughs) then all of the lowers, the the lower ranking, so to speak, employees fled too. So Moshe Rabbeinu didn't just get the sea to split, but in fact, all bodies of water to split. And the Maharal puts it this way. He says, Loka Givirta, the mistress, the Mediterranean, was now suffering so to speak, had to rip itself open. So then, Loka Shifcha Ima, her proverbial maidservants, or the rivers around, also experienced convulsion and change. And this, my dear friends, helps us to understand how on the night of Pesach, as we sit around the Seder and we continue to chant or recite or sing the hallow, how we are actually recounting the events the virtues and the messages of the Exodus of Yitzias Mitzrayim itself. In our next episode, we'll talk about moving mountains. Why did they frolic and jump like it seems like a flock of sheep? And why did, in fact, water, so to speak, was a uh, transformed what's this idea of flintstone turning into water so all these things in Merz Hashem will be talked about as we will be ezrat hashem in our next episode complete the first part of Halal and the haggadah please join me it's youtube.com forward slash Rabbi mendel kaplan i'm grateful for your participation and i hope and pray that as a result of us learning hashem's torah that we are accelerating the process of universal redemption and very, very speedily together we will merit the ge'ula ha'amites v'ashlema, ha'yedei Mashiach tzedkeinu, b'mheida ubi amenu. Amen. And a happy Yudah Lof to you all. Thank you.